After all of the crypto contagion and centralized services collapses of 2022, my assumption was that there's been a major move, not only towards Bitcoin, but towards self-custody. The original ethos of Bitcoiners of being your own bank should resonate more thoroughly than ever in the past. Today, I spoke with Jameson Lopp, who runs Casa and Multisig. I'm actually a customer. And he said that there was a spike in interest in self-custody, but that slowly waned, which is highly disappointing and uh, tells me that maybe we will once again repeat the mistakes of the past. But to that end, there has been at least some groundswell towards self-custody and Casa themselves have now opened the doors, not to just Bitcoin, but to Ethereum as well. Jameson and I talked about all of this and much more. That's dope. Uh, did did our people uh, coordinate on putting us in gray t-shirts? <laughs> <laughs> Just lucky, I guess. I think the big news for Casa, obviously, in the past few months was the move to add multi-sig for Ethereum, right? Which has been a largely controversial move, to say the least, probably for you. I've seen some of the maxis trying to pull, pull your membership card. What was behind <laughs> the decision and... Uh, what do you make of the reaction to it? Yeah, I would say it was actually uncontroversial and that, you know, what you see on social media is not at all uh, representative of the real world. Uh, and, you know, that's the, that's the, the you know, the, the fundamental reason behind all of it, right, is, you know, we're, we're running a business, we're providing security services for people. So, uh, when we see a trend of a lot of cl both clients and prospective clients coming to us saying, hey, I have a lot of value in blah, will you help me secure it? Then you, know, you have to start making these uh, cost benefits uh, decisions of like, you know, how much effort will it be for us to expand our business to support whatever and you know how do we expect that that will affect the sort of total addressable market of potential clients for us and so you know this is just a trend that we've been seeing over the past several years uh it's not like a, a switch suddenly flipped and we were like oh we better do this otherwise you know it's game over um it's it's more of just us keeping track of what's happening in the market just like we do uh, on the tech side as well um have to to see you know what what's happening in bitcoin what's happening in in really any of the other uh popular protocols and is casa in a position to do what we do well and what i think we do well is we we you know we don't roll our own crypto we don't do novel stuff we uh, assimilate whatever the best practices are and whatever the best tools and technologies are for today's you know security in this space and then we just try to make it as easy as possible you know, put a really good user experience on it uh, offer a really high level of uh, support and hand-holding for the people who need it and so you know, we got to the point where it makes sense to do that for Ethereum. Uh, you know, there's there's all, of course a lot more than just Ethereum happening on Ethereum. You know, I think stable coins are also going to be uh, a big uh, demand driver there. 
And, and then, you know, it's not going to stop there, right? Uh, we can, we can even talk about like NFTs on Bitcoin and ordinals and inscriptions and all the other oh, we're stuff going that to. is pissing people off. <laughs> we're, we're definitely going to get into all the uh, trigger, trigger points for sure. But even before you guys were considering Ethereum, I think you and I had a conversation on a past podcast about the technological differences and actually creating multi-sig and allowing for that to happen. And I, I think back then you alluded to the fact that it wasn't so easy with ERC-20 to create the same kind of system. So that was more the reason that you hadn't done it at that point was because it wasn't up to your standards or you hadn't figured out the best practices yet. So what changed there? What now allows Ethereum to be secured by multi-sig in a manner that's as secure as Bitcoin multi-sig? Yeah, so when I was at BitGo back in like 2015 to 2017, uh, I was there when BitGo went from only supporting Bitcoin to supporting many other things. And of course, Ethereum was the first thing that we added support for after Bitcoin. And back then, at the time, uh, you know, if you wanted a multi-signature uh, smart contract, you had to write it yourself. And uh, the, this is tantamount to what we would call rolling your own crypto. I would say like writing your own smart contract is about as dangerous as like trying to come up with your own cryptographic algorithms. Um, these, these things need to have a really, really high level of vetting and stress testing. And, uh, you know, you don't want to just write some code and then have people put a billion dollars into it because it's, it is the perfect bug bounty. So when BitGo did that, it took us over a year uh, to you know, write the contract and then go through at least like three different independent audits. And each audit was scary because they would find you know, critical issues, uh, not necessarily that like someone could steal all the money, but sometimes sort of griefing issues of like, well, with due to this edge case bug, somebody could execute you know, a transaction for 50 cents and, and effectively freeze your wallet and prevent you from ever being able to spend it by, you know, setting the nonce value to the maximum integer, you know, stuff like this is just like scary stuff when you're, you're, you're dealing with you know, arbitrarily large amounts of money that you're trying to help people secure. So, you know, what happened? Uh, well, um, people in the space kept working on multi-sig and uh, it was really right around, I think, the time when Costa launched, or around 2018, uh, Gnosis Safe, uh, you know, hit, came online, and they really became, I think, the the preeminent you know, multi-sig solution uh, for Ethereum. And so, you know, we've been watching, and uh, we got to the point where we're like, you know what? Uh, from what we can tell, Gnosis Safe contracts are uh, securing, you know untold billions if not you know tens of billions of dollars worth of assets uh on ethereum network and uh it's open for us to build off of so the, it really it got to the point where you know we're confident that we don't have to write our own uh, smart contract we are confident that we can you know integrate uh the sort of standard and best practices that has been out there for a number of years and and basically apply the other aspects of Casa's technology and, and services on top of that much more solid foundation. 
I'm quite familiar, obviously, with the you know three or five multi-sig that you guys offer for Bitcoin. What does the Ethereum multi-sig actually look like for a customer or retail user? Well, from a user interface standpoint, it's going to look the same in the app, right? You know, we're, we're going to display your, your key set and you're, you're going to have either three keys, five keys, six keys, whatever. And, you know, you will interface with it in the same type of manner where you'll have a variety of different keys, one on the mobile phone itself, several on other, you know, distributed hardware devices. And your know, signing uh, process also going to be similar. You know, you want to create a transaction, and we just help guide you through the workflow of adding the required number of signatures to it uh, from any of the the keys that you have set up on there. So you know, the fact that under the hood it is it's being powered by this Gnosis safe contract is is generally it's it's going to be uh, opaque to people. Uh, you know. If you want to, of course, you can always do what we call our sovereign recovery setup. You can go, you know, recreate that wallet, you know, with Gnosis Safe's UI. You know, maybe you want to interact with or, or manage uh, some assets that we don't support, you know, in the mobile app, for example. Uh, that would be another option for you to be able to you know, take advantage of the extra functionality that they may have. But you know. Under the hood, uh, it's it's effectively the same type of multi-sig. It's just instead of using a Bitcoin script, we're now using a Ethereum, you know, EVM compatible contract. And is it available for all ERC twenty tokens, or strictly for Ethereum? Yeah. So this is where it gets a little bit more nuanced, right? Is that technically the Gnosis Safe contract will support any ERC twenty? However, uh, until we add support into the mobile app, you won't have it through Casa, but you could always have it through Gnosis Safe's UI. And you know, this is where once again it, it turns into like a business decision of what's the demand for any given thing. Um, you know, I, I don't think we want to just like automatically load every possible token in there. You know, that actually creates you know security vulnerabilities too because. The, there will be fraudsters out there that'll launch a token that looks almost exactly like a legitimate token. We, we, we don't, we want to do as much as possible to prevent our clients from shooting themselves in the foot. Which is the entire point in the first place. <laughs> we, we've talked about it sort of at, at length, but your single point of failure is you, right? So it's very hard to become your own bank. You need to because of all the contagion and risk we've seen. But then when it's all on you, you're very likely to make some sort of just fundamental error or mistake. Hell, I've almost done it. I've had to send you a DM on Twitter <laughs> in a half panic about mistakes I've even made. So it's it, it happens. Yeah, we're all human. Uh, and, you know, that's that's why at least, you know, when you have multiple keys going on, you know, hopefully that just like slows you down. And you have to think more about what you're doing, so true. Uh, but it's still yeah. not perfect. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, you know, if you take on a sufficient level of uh, responsibility and self-custody, then that necessarily means there will be some path of decisions that you can make that will end up being bad for you. Yeah, uh, well, luckily, luckily you've abstracted away quite 
quite a few of them with what you're building. It's interesting what you said about the ERC-20 support. I mean, there's got to be probably 20,000 ERC-20 tokens at this point, right? Right. So you got to imagine that 90-something percent of those are either outright scams or completely worthless. So how will you then vet and choose what is likely to come next? Will it be by market cap, you know, some sort of uh, amorphous customer demand? How will you determine how you head down that road? Because it's a pretty slippery slope, I would imagine, and, and a pretty endless road that you could go down. Yeah, yeah, there will definitely be some level, I think, of sort of gut check subjectivity. Um, I, th- I think it's pretty much a no-brainer that we're we're going to add the you know multi-billion-dollar stable coins. Um, sure. I, you know, you know, we could go down the whole tr- tether truther uh, <laughs> rabbit hole there, but uh, but I think that that's not something that uh, we're particularly uh, serious or worried about. Um, and and then yeah, I mean, a lot of it really is, I think, function of demand. So. Um, I think we'll we'll basically put it out there for our clients of like you know do you have a, a favorite token? How much shib do you own? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Well, that so you know, and th- this is what I think pisses off a lot of the more like you know toxic maximalist folks uh, is you know that they they have in many cases valid perspectives of of why you know certain things are scams or immoral or you know just not as good as bitcoin uh and therefore you shouldn't be wasting your time on them but at the end of the day you have to you have to understand you know this is this is a permissionless space like people should have the freedom to experiment and play around with stuff and and we have to be neutral as a business like i don't think i don't think it makes sense for a business to be like passing moral judgment on uh what clients are doing with their own money um and you know, I think this is this is the thing that a lot of the people who uh, may hate me or say that I'm not a good maximalist or, or whatever don't seem to understand is like there's Jameson and his personal opinions and beliefs, you know, as as a longtime Bitcoiner uh, who has uh, avoided a lot of the scams in the space. Um, and is generally uninterested in most you know, things in this space. And then there's uh, you know Jameson, the co-founder, who's providing security services for people, and people may have uh, you know a million dollars worth of cum rocket, and they yeah. they are willing to pay to secure that cum rocket, and, and I have to you know, say, oh, well, you shouldn't have cum rocket in the first place. Well, or should I say I can provide you with security services? So, uh, you know, it's um, it's a fun. Uh, rock and hard place to be stuck between. It is, but it seems so obvious, right? Because at the core, I think that Bitcoin values align with values of freedom, libertarian, whatever you want. I find it so curious. I can understand the hate for these other assets. I can understand even the rationale behind it, but not wanting people to be free to do whatever they want should be such a hard line in the sand for anyone who believes in Bitcoin, in, in my opinion. And taking that even a step further, now we're seeing a lot of those toxic Bitcoiners applauding the regulatory and legislative efforts of the government 
against <laughs> other parts of the crypto industry, which to me is just cognitive dissonance of the highest order. Yeah, uh, I've, I've heard about this. I don't think I've actually seen it, perhaps because I just don't follow or I generally yeah. ignore the, the type of people who are, are doing that. And um, you know, I think the principled take on that is that, you know, we should understand that you know, this is an adversarial environment, like crypto in general, like the, the entire point of this space was started off the idea of needing to get rid of trusted third parties and, and generally get rid of authorities in general who, who can you know, screw with and manipulate the rules of the various systems that they are creating or controlling. And you know, we, we understand from a pragmatic standpoint that you know, the authorities still do exist and have a lot of power. And therefore, like anything that you're doing in crypto, it probably makes sense for it to be nation state resistant. Uh, or at least if you're not trying to be nation state resistant, you should be upfront about that in the first place, because I think it's kind of an assumption that uh, a lot of people in crypto are, are going to say, which is, you know, this is quote unquote decentralized. Therefore, you know, it should not be affected by what the SEC or, or other government agencies think. But uh, we're definitely at the point now where the, the government agencies are well aware of what is going on. And it appears some of them are headed by people who have, you know, political aspirations and want to make a name for themselves. Therefore, they are going to be expending resources at you know sort of nation state levels to attack whatever they think are the the weakest things in these systems because they 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 want to make a point they want uh, people to be afraid or to you know at least uh, respect their authority. <laughs> I'm always here for any uh, good Cartman reference, but it kind of, I mean, it, it, the whole thing kind of reminds me of, I don't know the exact quote, but you know, first they came for the communists yep. and I didn't pay, then they came for the, then they came for the, then they came for me. Right. I, I would think that, uh, speaking of slippery slopes again, I, I know that we all believe that Bitcoin is sort of well siloed and, and protected and it's not a security and all of these things. But I would think that cheering anything that puts regulators and legislators on the warpath could eventually rationally be bad for Bitcoin as well. Yeah, I mean, I think the, I guess the biggest real like nation state attack that Bitcoin has endured was like the Chinese mining ban or, or really all of the Chinese bans. Um, and, you know, it really depends on how you look at these systems, right? I mean, when whenever those attacks happened, there would usually be a pretty negative uh, exchange rate change, at right. least, you know, for a while, uh, because people were afraid what was going to happen. And then over the long run, you, you see that, you know, the network is resilient. And usually that's because the people who are powering the network are resilient and, and they're willing to you know, go elsewhere if, if things get bad enough. It just gets so much trickier, I think, when you expand that to crypto as a whole and all right. of these other projects, because we just nobody has enough time to even evaluate all of these different tokens. Like, uh, you know, maybe you do because you're more on the like investor trading side. But like, I no look way, at stuff, though, man. Like, I don't no even way. have time to read the white paper for most of these things. Yeah, no way. And and so like, and that's 
part of the narrative, I think, from our echo chamber, which is admittedly a bit unfair to regulators into the government, not that I, I would support them, but like they're not going to go through 25,000 tokens and individually decide whether their securities or not, or whether they should exist. Uh, to to pretend that were that important, important, or that they would have the bandwidth to do so is, is a bit nonsensical. Just not something I think that could happen. Yeah. So it's 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 going to be you know whatever becomes big enough to I guess cause enough harm and attract their attention. Yeah. I mean, we may have talked about this in the past. He brought up obviously China going offline and, you know, basically 50% of the hash rate disappeared overnight. I also find there found there to be some cognitive dissonance when that happened because everyone panicked that China was gone and that meant Bitcoin was dead. But if you had looked six months before that, everyone was panicking that China controlled Bitcoin and needed to go away. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... I had an article that that I wrote about like why a, a sort of Chinese attack against mining was not a sort of existential threat uh, to Bitcoin, and I think that has aged quite well. Um, but you know now uh, I haven't looked at the stats in a few weeks, but you know now it's it's like well that just all shifted to America. So now you know yeah. is America an existential threat to Bitcoin mining? I, I would I would argue less so because of just sort of American culture and politics in general. But still, you know the the hash rate is not as well distributed across jurisdictional boundaries as I think any of us would like. And it seems like there's a chance China is somewhat coming back online. Which, yeah. by the way, every China ban, uh, except for the last one, resulted in there not being a China ban and China coming back online. So I think we should not be surprised by that. But I didn't have on my 2023 bingo card, like China opening up and being more reasonable and the United States uh, declining and, and becoming tighter. I mean, do you think that there's a chance here from what you're seeing that I, I haven't looked at the hash rate stats or anything that China could effectively become a player again? I mean, I think it's it's always possible because of how easy it seems for the Chinese authorities to flip flop. <laughs> so, you know, if I think if the the business folks in China, I guess, uh, improve their relations with whatever authorities uh, have been making these decrees, then you know, it's certainly possible that we see more flip flopping. Uh, yeah, because I still think a a huge There's amount still of hash rate of- in China. <laughs> Yeah, the, the, I think it's still 20, 20%, if not more, that's in China. I mean, China is so huge. You know, it's the, it's the whole, there's not enough boots to kick in enough of the doors problem. Uh, that my understanding, like a lot of those, um, a lot of those farms are literally just like in the jungle, you know, next to a hydro dam. Uh, yeah. Um, so pretty easy to hide from a sort of footprint perspective. And also, I mean, I think a lot of the the actual silicon, you know, ASIC manufacturing is still over there. So you would think that from a sort of industrial standpoint, they would want to try to keep more of the business in that region. Yeah. Has any of this government intervention, the ramping up of regulatory scrutiny of the industry, has any of that materially affected CASA and your business? Or do you see a path where it could? Or are you actually really well Actually, I would probably think that it has helped your business, right? Because uh, it's pushing more people towards self-custody. We can talk about the contagion side of that from last year. That's not necessarily regulatory. But let's first start with, has has any of it hurt you or 
does it uh, give you any concern about what you're able to do in the future? No, nothing that has actually impacted our ability to operate. I mean, I think there have been some bills in in Europe or changes in Europe that were more uh, restrictive and in the, in the sense that they were like requiring more KYC type of operations for people who were doing self-custody. But, you know, nothing that has, um, you know, forced anything like that and any draconian changes on our end, uh, it, it may... You know, it's, it's always possible. I, I think you're going to get into some situations in the medium to long-term future where eventually the regulators may start to look at sort of hybrid custody models. So, you know, like the fact that CASA has one of your three or one of your five keys, maybe someday that will be regulated more. Um, as it stands today, uh, we are just considered a sort of software and service provider. Um, you know, whether or not that sort of like partial custody uh, eventually becomes a regulated thing is, is still up in the air. I think it can get more interesting, especially if we start seeing more multi-institution uh, custody models. And by which I mean, a say you have three keys and you hold one key, but then Casa holds one key and then a different company holds another key. Uh, it's kind of hard to describe you know, what what is the custody arrangement in that situation, right? It's there is like it, basically if you get into a situation where there is no single party who has you know a threshold of spending keys. Uh, does does anyone need to be regulated, uh, you know, as a custodian? Or perhaps will there be new regulations that are like, if you're a key holder but not a custodian, do you need to do X, Y, Z? I don't know. I, I think we're still a number That's of years away from, uh, you know, the government agencies uh, getting to that level of nuance. Uh, that is interesting. It's like possession is nine-tenths of the law. So whose coins are they actually if you have the split multi-sig? But then we've... Uh, seen a ramp up in rhetoric from the SEC about custody, right? Mm -hmm. Largely about institutional custody. So they're not speaking about you, but I would have to imagine that institutions to some degree have multi-sig access set up, right? So is there an angle there where it becomes problematic? Well, you know, the thing about uh, what, what the institutional custody folks are doing is they tend to be pretty secretive. Um, yeah. I don't know how many of them are actually using multi-sig. I think a lot of them are using more like, like a Shamir secret sharing or other ways of sort of splitting up what is the important key material. Um, you know, for example, like straight multi-sig uh, actually isn't great for institutions and custodians because it's harder to add and revoke access to keys. Yeah, for sure. So that's guy, actually guy why gets fired and runs away with a wallet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's why the thing, the, the more creative, you know, Shamir secret sharing or, or other, uh, you know, MPC style architectures seem to be more highly, uh, adopted on the institutional side. It's because it has that additional level of flexibility. We're, we are not as big fans of that because most of those solutions are either uh, 
like closed source, not, not standardized things and, or are not supported by dedicated hardware, you know, like the treasures and ledgers and whatnot. And so like my understanding is that, you know, the, the, the folks that are doing that type of stuff, uh, they're using, you know, dedicated air gapped devices, whether it's like a, a, a phone or a laptop or whatever. And so like there is a higher threshold uh, and difficulty to actually set up and maintain that stuff, but it makes more sense, you know, if it's an enterprise setting. Yeah. So I hinted at this before, but 2022 year was obviously the year of contagion, right? I mean, Voyager Celsius, BlockFi, FTX. We have FUD against basically every exchange not named Coinbase at this point. <laughs> Has that given a major push to people towards your services or self-custody in general? I mean, anecdotally, we can see, I think, large exchange outflows, which would indicate that that's certainly possible. But it seems like for a business like yours, what happened last year would be a boon. It is, but only only for like a, a short window of time, right? And this Humans. is one of the things that's disconcerting about the collapses in this space. Uh, you know, these major custodian collapses have been happening for a decade. And unfortunately, history keeps repeating itself. You know, sure, each one collapses for a slightly different reason, but the aftermath is always the same. Uh, we talk about, you know, not your keys, not your coins. We, we Maybe we talk about proof of reserves. And, you know, we talk about best practices for a month or two afterwards, and then everybody forgets and, and moves on because, you know, the news cycle has changed to something new and terrible that's happening. So, right. um, unfortunately, from that perspective, you know, it's uh, it's still an ongoing issue. It's 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 still tough to sell security and self custody to people who haven't been burned. And then usually the people who have been burned have lost almost everything and have nothing <laughs> left to self custody. So yeah, it's, right. it's a kind of paradoxical uh, place to operate from. I'm not going to say I'm surprised, but I am disappointed because it seemed like there was a very clear movement at the last, at the end of last year towards self-custody. And I felt like we had the really uh, massive sort of culmination of that in FTX. And I would think that only three months now after FTX, maybe we're four months removed, four months, you would still see people panicking. But I guess you're no, right. I mean, so many people was... who were crypto native were the ones who lost their money on FTX and have nothing left now anyways. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, October and November were, were pretty good, you know, peak fear and exodus from custodians. And then we went into the holidays and everybody forgot. And which gives you zero confidence that we're going to learn from our mistakes and that there won't be a repeat of these same cycles and errors. I mean, oh, there's... Um, for the foreseeable future, I think this type of cycle is going to continue until we actually reach you know, maximum adoption, whatever that is, because it's, it's going to be a, another bull market will be another new wave of entrance. And in many cases, they will have to learn the best practices the hard way. And so the question becomes how many more cycles with new waves of, of noobs who have to get burned are there going to be? And, and how will they enter the asset class and the cycle in the next one is the big question because 
as much as I hate to say it, right? It hasn't been through Bitcoin as much in the past few years as it was before. Even me, mm-hmm. who came in in 2016, obviously much later than people like yourself, you still, even if you wanted exposure to altcoins, you had to buy Bitcoin first. There was right. no stablecoin trading pairs. Even if you just wanted to be a degenerate gambler, you had to buy Bitcoin on Coinbase, You know, move it to Bittrex and then trade Bitcoin pairs because that's all there was. Now, I think we're more likely to see a bunch of people come in through, well, last last time it was Doge, let's be honest, right? Mm-hmm. NFTs, right? I don't know what the next narrative will be, but I have a feeling it will be more detached from Bitcoin than it was in the past, which gives people less self-custody options and more of a chance, obviously, to get burned, right? So yep. it may be worse each cycle, not better. And that's half of the fun is uh, seeing what the 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 wacky new fad is going to be that, that, that will suck in a lot of people. So I just remembered as we're talking that you had sent a tweet, I think, while we were in Dubai or just after about whales that we were basically with meeting with Three Arrows Capital yeah. And that we were going, and just because now we're talking about repeats of same mistakes, um, I didn't tell you this, but I crashed a meeting I was not invited to with them uh, while we were in Dubai uh, because I'm a Voyager creditor and I was just pissed off uh, and, I, and I wanted to know, but um, I came out very disheartened. I was not there to buy the token, uh, as many people were. Uh, no intention of doing that and did not do that, which I think was what your tweet was specifically talking about. People going, mm-hmm. buying their token, which was pumping. And But um, they raised money overnight for their new venture. And all of the people who sort of railed against them publicly uh, seemingly were meeting with them and willing to take a shot on giving them money again. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, maybe that's because they, they think, you know, this is the like one trade to make it all back or something. I don't know. Do you think, or do you think that maybe people are just so greedy and they literally learn nothing? I don't know. I don't know what the lesson is from it, but I mean, what was your first take when you heard that that was happening? Uh, you know, I just, um, it's disappointing because people, I mean, people, they're, they're, I guess they're following their incentives, right? They, they think, oh, these guys made a lot of money the first time and then something went wrong and they lost it all. But maybe they've got the, the juice to, to do it right this time. Um, I think it's a question of uh, how do we approach you know, reputation in this space? And I, I, I'm sure that there have been some like debates and arguments uh, around, you know, whether the like three arrows capital guys were like the good guys who just got screwed. Uh, that that was the narrative that, that that was certainly the narrative when I sat with them and, and they yeah. made some good points. And then there was a lot of things where my bullshit alarms were flashing heavily, but yeah, continue. Yeah. So yeah, I, I guess that's what people have to decide, you know, if they can sleep at night, you know, believing that, you know, these were just the good guys who, uh, they, they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And, uh, if you just give them another chance, they'll, they'll do things right. But, uh, you know, I, I think that there are a lot of cases in which we should understand that people are human and make mistakes and maybe give them second chances. But my problem with that whole saga 
it was it was mostly with like how they dealt with it after the fact. I mean, why would you run away to Dubai rather than facing all of the uh, the questions uh, that are coming at you after your uh, business has fallen apart? Like that didn't uh, feel to me like that. That's what you know the honest. Uh, way of going about trying to deal with and clean yeah. up the mess that they left. And I can tell you what you'd find interesting about the conversation that that I had with them. And I won't, I won't uh, divulge who else was there, whose meeting I was crashing, because it certainly was not mine. But they, it was Kyle. And he was very quick to defend their previous actions by saying, listen, people pushed us to create a three arrows token. We had these opportunities to create a coin and that was against our ethos. So we never did that. We really were just a hedge fund. And yes, we blew up. That's terrible. We took institutional money, not retail. But like five minutes later was talking about their new token. <laughs> right? For, for, for the, the flex token or whatever for the exchange. Things like that uh, kind of, you know, it, that, was, that was a bit tough to reconcile in my yeah, well, on, and I mean, that whole uh, partnership as well, you know, with CoinFlex blowing up after Roger giving Roger all of that, uh, uh, I guess, semi-collateralized margin. Yeah, $70 million actually, dollars or something, yeah. 40, uh, 70, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you know, when, when you see you know, sort of that shadiness kind of glom onto the three arrows capital shadiness, you know, I just don't see how anyone would want to touch that with a 10 foot pole, but maybe, you know, some folks are just kind of seeing this as a sort of, you know, long shot, uh, high risk gamble. Maybe Mark Lamb from CoinFlex was secretly the third arrow. I always wondered <laughs> who that third arrow might be. But we talk about this move towards self custody that was somewhat temporary, right? You said uh, sort of max fear in October, November. Have you noticed or been surprised either way that there has or has not been a move towards Bitcoin in the, in the same manner, because there was talk of that too, right? The Bitcoin maxis kind of saying, hey, come on over. The water's warm. You're not going to be deemed a security. You can self-custody. You can hold this asset. It's never going anywhere. Or do you think that that was also a two-week uh, temporary narrative that died? Yeah, well, I mean, it's like, why... Why are people in the space in the first place? And it kind of goes back to what you were saying is, is like with the more recent adoption cycles, it, it may not be people coming in because they want you know, the hard money narrative. Uh, it may be some other, you know, flash in the pan, like gaming or gambling or art. Uh, and I think this is one of the things that, uh, to the consternation of the the more like angry, toxic maximalist folks, uh, they they don't understand that. And I I kind of straddle that myself. Um, I don't really understand or see the value in you know tokenized art, but I don't see much value in a lot of art. I mean, I have some art pieces, sure. but I, I would I've never spent more than probably $500 on a piece of art. Uh, so I certainly don't understand spending you know, tens of thousands <laughs> on uh, something. And so, you know, it, it's all personal and subjective. And uh, I think the, you know, things get weird when you're, you're talking to the folks who are very anti those things. 
because it, it like you said, it, it, it almost, it almost seems like anti free market or anti competition uh, in some cases, like they're, they're almost like deluding themselves that such a thing can exist. And I, I try not to do that. You know, um, I can, once again, there's like Jameson personally does not see value in these things, but if I step back and I put my business hat on, I say, well, these people see value in it and that's what matters. <laughs> it's not you should that absolutely not be securing money. people's board apes. If you can do that yeah. in a manner that yeah. you believe in will actually secure them. And those people see value in it as a business owner. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, there is, I think there is no denying the value of these things. I mean, you, you can see it's a, it's a free market. You can see the actual, you know, dollar values that have been traded and are assigned to these various tokens, uh, whether they're fungible or not. And, and so to, to deny that, I think is to kind of you know, deny reality or have some sort of wishful thinking about like what reality ought to be like. Bur burying your head in the sand. It is. Yeah. But speaking of, uh, speaking of digital art, you brought it up earlier, ordinals. What do we what do we make of uh, NFTs on Bitcoin clogging up all the block space? You know, <laughs> yeah. You know, once again, uh, I have not been minting anything myself because it kind of makes me feel icky to be uh, using a lot of block space. But I have to understand you know, that once again, this is a censorship resistant, permissionless network, and that. Uh, this has always been the case that people can use block space for things that you disagree with. You know, Bitcoin is for enemies. Uh, meme is is real, and I can understand. Uh, I guess the point of of having your art or whatever your other token is, where like you have literally inscribed that data into. Bitcoin's blockchain, which is arguably like one of the most decentralized, immutable data stores out there. Um, I think it's hard for me to believe that the market size for those things will ever approach like what it has been on Ethereum or maybe Solana Agreed. or some of the other stuff, because, you know, there's a couple things going on. Uh, first of all, the fact that it truly is using the blockchain for the data storage, unlike most of the other NFTs that are just pointing to stuff, um, that means it is it's a very heavy and expensive protocol to use. You know, you're paying a lot more than you would, I think, to to mint stuff on like Solana, uh, and and secondly, of course, you know, the block space in general is far more constrained. So I think like sort of combination of the inefficiency and the constraints of doing the stuff on Bitcoin is going to make the Bitcoin NFT market small. It'll be limited. Like I think it, if it does become a thing, then it's only going to make sense for the much more expensive, you know, valuable stuff. And that may be appealing in and of, it's, in and of itself where people want to say, hey, I have, you know, rare NFTs on the expensive Bitcoin blockchain. And maybe that's a selling point for some people. Uh, so, you know, I think it will continue to be a thing. I just, I'm, I'm skeptical that it'll be as big or a even a significant portion of the total crypto NFT market. And you also brought up stable coins before, um, 
which have obviously exploded over the past few years. If you look at the top 10, 20 market cap, it's more like half of it is stable coins, right? Yep. But interestingly, in the sort of be your own bank mentality, you would think that being able to secure in the manner that you do stable coins would be something that almost everybody could get behind. Because that really, I mean, it's one thing to say, you know, to push people towards Bitcoin and to say, you know, it's a superior, harder money, which we all agree to. But I think reality is that there's a lot of people in the world who just want access to dollars and are using stable coins for that. And to truly unbank those people means securing stable coins. Yeah. So, you know, there's both the individual and I think the enterprise way of looking at this. I think that actually a lot of crypto companies ought to be moving significant portions of their uh, bank funds into stable coins. Because, I mean, we're seeing a lot of them getting... It's crazy. Yeah, yeah, you're getting unbanked left and right. Um, This is, you know, I guess the operation choke point uh, happening, at least in the US and maybe Europe. Uh, But, like, from a personal standpoint... If I can choose between using like Tether or USDC versus having to do wire transfers, like that's a no brainer for me. Um, And I suspect, I suspect it's the same thing on the enterprise side. And then also, you know, if, especially if you can keep your uh, sort of operating budget of dollars in uh, a multi sig rather than having it in one bank account that could rug you for any of a million reasons. I mean, that seems like a a pretty obvious win to me. Which is funny because your average person would never think that the bank could rug you, but they clearly Mm. haven't been paying attention. Yeah. Although it seems that this, uh, as of this week, you know, it seems our industry rugged a bank instead of the bank rugging them. (laughs) Everybody at the same time sort of pulled out of, Silvergate. But yeah, I, I find, you know, outside of my Bitcoin sensibilities, I really find stable coins to have become one of the truly killer apps of crypto that maybe I didn't see coming. I just think that access to dollars for people in places with hyperinflated currency, yes, I'd rather than buy Bitcoin, but it's just hugely important, hugely important. And those same people can get robbed at the Western Union or just have their phone stolen and lose their stable coins. Seems like the next step there is true self custody. Yeah, I mean, it feels kind of dirty, um, you know, because it's fiat. Well, yeah, well, not even that. It's like I, I think stable coins are. It's disappointing that the ones that have withstood the test of time are unfortunately the highly centralized ones who have that single point of failure custodian once again. Uh, right. You know, I really wish that we had a, you know, algorithmic uh, stable coin that could withstand. How dare you? How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's because that's that's kind of my, that's my thing. Like, I want to eliminate single points of failure in every aspect uh, of, you know, our, our lives. And, you know, maybe, maybe someday, but. Yeah, you're, I mean, you're right, right? I don't think that they're coming after USDC anytime soon. I have no idea with USDT. But if that banking relationship gets cut off, we're screwed again. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. An algorithmic stablecoin has become a four-letter word because of Luna. So I don't know that we're going to see it happen on that side. Maybe the massively over-collateralized die type. I don't know. I, I have no idea what kind of stablecoin will win but I actually am cheering for something to win. I do think it's really important. 
So is there anything else that we may have uh, missed here uh, that you want to share with everybody about what CASA is doing or what you're seeing in the industry But before I uh, let you go? You know, we're, we're continuing to evaluate. Uh, you know, I, I think... You know, we will, we have been seeing more demand for like Bitcoin, NFT, ordinal stuff. Uh, so maybe that becomes a thing. Personally, you know, I've been keeping track of Noster uh, a lot recently. I'm using it as well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I'm interested in that because, you know, once again, it's, it's a cryptographic technology. There's no token behind it, but, you know, people are, are using private keys to be able to, um, having you know, freedom of expression and communication and you know, basically getting rid of the, the risk of deplatforming. And so, you know, the reason I say that it, it sort of all ties in with CASA because we, we are not a, a Bitcoin company. We're not even like a crypto asset company. Like from the very beginning, we've been a self-sovereignty company. We want to help people manage their private keys because our thesis has been that private keys will become more and more important to people's lives, you know, over the coming years and decades. And so that's going to be a lot more than just the financial aspects of your life. Yeah, it's going to be your identity. Uh, I mean, we, we don't need to talk about it, but I think digital identity based on cryptography with private keys could be the next huge wave. I mean, Nostra, I guess, is a first iteration of that. Yeah, you know, there's a number of different projects out there. They're all trying to solve it. So once again, you know, we just we keep our ears open and uh, wait to see you know, which things gain enough traction. Well, I can say that I, for one, am excited that you've opened the door to Ethereum and will be using it myself. So at least you got uh, one uh, dedicated old customer who's not uh, pissed off about it, but I would imagine you have quite a few others. <laughs> Indeed. Glad to have you on board. Yeah, man. Thank you so much uh, for the time. Oh, where can everybody find you and obviously uh, check out CASA and utilize the services themselves? Uh, check out uh, keys.casa, keys.casa, and uh, you can find me at L-O-P-P on Twitter or you know, lop.net uh, if you want to check and out a ton of educational resources. Four-letter Twitter name. It's like, a, like gold. Uh, incredible. Awesome, man. Well, thank you. I, I absolutely love this conversation. I always love your sort of uh, pragmatic approach and your ability to separate your own personal views from what's good for the community and good for the business. So I, I applaud that for sure. Thanks. That's dope.